Hello, welcome to Culture Fear. 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 Absolute Fear. That song does my head in, but let's put that to one side, shall we? Hello, welcome to episode 14 of Culture Fear. I'm sat in my living room talking to you next to my ill dog who's uh, spent the day chucking up. Um, yeah, I guess it's obviously been a month since last time. Uh, been to a few shows, went over to Leeds recently, saw Reviver and Hurry. Um, both bands I've seen a few times over the years, I guess. Um, both as good as ever. Um, trying to think, I saw uh, Kinky play their last show on Saturday, which was great at the Audacious Art Space, which um, is supposedly changing its name. Uh, check out that space and everything, that, like the label and everything that they've done over the last eight years. Um, really a real hub for Sheffield and the UK, really, for some great music. Um, personally, been uni a lot. Uh, did a presentation this week on uh, William Blake. Interesting uh, character. Um, and a few, you know, analysis to get in. So uni's fully, fully in flow now, which is great. I'm loving it. Loving Sheffield in general. Um, yeah, I guess that's about it really with me. Um, thank you if you've listened. If this is your first um, Culture Fear, cheers for listening. Um, if, you, if you've come back bef- again, thank you. Um, tell your friends if you like it. Maybe leave a review. But yeah, the main thing, um, just tell your friends if you think they'll enjoy it. You know, I'm always telling my friends about podcasts. I think they'll enjoy. If this happens to be one that they might, then um, yeah, please tell them. Um, this one... It, it, finished it and I honestly text um, a few friends saying this was a really really good episode Um, for a few I mean every episode I really enjoy but this one there's a lot of things that I guess I have that there's not as many people that could tell you about certain experiences whether it be Avi touring kind of places that you'll soon hear about that's kind of a bit off the beaten track when it comes to British bands heading those to those areas, which obviously you'll hear was on purpose going to those places. Um, also, the experience, both politically and like musically, and also how that obviously, especially with um, yeah, how that kind of merges, especially um, yeah, with Avi growing up in Israel. Um, you know, not always is punk. Um, as punk as we uh, as we like to think, I guess. But obviously, when I'm sure you're in, a, well, well, you'll hear about how that how that is in Israel, how playing shows, going back over there, just the whole situation. And I think that um, you know, in the UK, we have an idea of what bands should and shouldn't do, and the relationship with Israel. And I think that hearing from someone that is is, is from there and grew up in those scenes um, about being those people in those scenes I think is quite ex- in, uh, invaluable really um, and it's you know one of the only well the only person really that I, I, I have to talk about that with and I'm so grateful that Avi wanted to talk about it and was 
spoke about it so well. Hopefully you'll get um, you'll get something that you didn't really think about before um, from it. But yeah, so that's about it really. Um, yeah, oh, started a new job and Avi's actually my boss. You'll hear about his company, what company might be the wrong word, his restaurant. Um, yeah, started working there a few weeks ago. That's great. If you're in Sheffield, pop down to Just For Laughs. Great food. Was my favourite restaurant in Sheffield. Still is. But obviously that relationship's changed now that I'm the one serving the food. But yeah, thank you for listening. Um, take care of yourselves and let me know what you think of it. Cool. Bye. Hello, how you doing? Yeah, not bad, cheers. Sweet. Um, yeah, I guess um, hesitate to ask because you seem, I think you're the, probably the busiest person I know, but um, what have you been up to recently? Everything. Um, finding new log hall, working, two jobs, having a baby. It's all been a bit, bit hectic at the moment. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, so how's things with the log hole going? Going well. Um well, as well as can be, at least we had uh, we had a space. For those who don't know, we had a space that ended up. Uh, we had to stop doing gigs there, so it was a space that had a gig area and practice rooms. But we had to stop doing gigs there due to the council coming down on us and some different enforcement issues. Um, so then, since then, we've been looking for a new place. We raised quite a lot of money, which we're quite thankful of. We raised about seven grand. Um, and then we've been on the search for a new place. Found one place. It went. It was looking promising, but then because of uh, residential areas around, the council said that they, we couldn't do it there, or it wasn't really viable to do it there. Um, but now we've got another place on the cards, and we're having to jump through a few hoops. Uh, but hopefully, we'll get there soon. Sweet, sweet. And then, um, yeah. So the baby's knocking on the door at this point. Yeah, baby due is due in. Six days. Could be any time now, really. <laughs> cool, cool. And um, yeah, it seems like you're kind of all there now, ready ready for that. Yeah, yeah. I decided to rip the kitchen up probably about two weeks before the baby came, which was a uh, was good plan. Um, one thing leads to another. But yeah, almost there. But I'd say 99% there. Sweet, cool. Um, and then, um, yeah, so you've also got the business as well, right? Your own business? Yeah, so I work, well, I work as both, I work in social work and then I've got a falafel place together with a good friend of mine, Ada. Yeah, yeah, how's that been going? That's about a year, is it? Just over a year? Uh, it's going to be a year in Feb. Yeah, it's, it's going all right. It's like some better months, some worse months, thinking of how to, because it's a neighborhood place, it's not in city center. So thinking of how to kind of get it on a par that we can. I think we're building a good name. We need to start making a bit of money now. Yeah, yeah. That'd be nice. Oh, fair enough. Um, yeah, so what was the... Has that always been a, an idea, the the shop? Yeah, the falafel place has been an idea for me for about four years now. Yeah. Um, my partner, the, who, who's the chef, ended up taking a bit of time because he... He's not originally from here. He grew up with me back home in Israel and he was working on getting a Romanian passport where his family's from. Yeah. So that took a bit of time. Um, and then he went, to, went ended up going to study to be a chef in London, in Le Cordon Bleu. Um, and then, yeah, 
by the time we came round to it, it's probably about four years later. And then looking really, I mean, I always had the idea of getting the street food that I really missed in Israel, but also looking at some of the options that weren't vegan and making them vegan. Yeah. So that was always my plan. Um, and that's, that's kind of, I mean, that's the vision that came through in the restaurant really now. Yeah, amazing. Because, um, yeah, there's definitely, like, I guess more than half of the menu is food that I hadn't heard of, let alone eaten before. Yeah. Um, it must be like great I guess obviously people trying stuff for the first time but there must be people coming in that like you said the stuff that you've missed where people are like wow I haven't been able to get any of this yeah I mean a lot of maybe people that have travelled and tasted something on their travels but then really have not found it back in in the well in the UK I'd say in London they probably have versions of everything that we're doing but out of London it's a lot harder so I think, yeah, coming back to the UK and figuring out, oh, that's what I ate on holiday. It might be, um, might be a Malibu, which is kind of like a coconut panna cotta. Yeah. Um, it might be diff- various things. Um, but, I mean, the twist is, I guess, that it's always a vegan version of it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm. Oh, amazing. Um, I guess, um, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll jump back to the start. Like you said, um, like um, you're, you're from Israel. Were you born and raised in Israel? No, I was born in Barnsley. Okay. Um, and then I grew up for a few years in Denmark and a few years in the US and then ended up in Israel when I was eight years old. Okay. And then from eight till about 17, I was in Israel. So quite a substantial part of growing up, I was Yeah, there. yeah. And then I came over um, to do with, well, not, not doing the army and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. got national service over there, three years national service, and I didn't want to do it so <laughs> yeah so I ended yeah. up leaving yeah fair enough um how was um like the teenage years over there um well the city I come from was quite I'd say quite different than the rest of Israel I come from like really the south a place called Elat which is on the border of Egypt and Jordan on the Red Sea and it's very much a holiday town okay so it's like something between maybe between Ibiza and Alicante or something uh, yeah probably the closest I can equate it to. So everything everything there is probably to do around the tourism. Yeah. Um so growing up I worked in I worked in a burger restaurant, worked in a CD shop. But it's all very much aimed at tourists. I mean, the people that actually live there is probably at the time was like forty five thousand people. Yeah. But then you got another like sixty thousand tourists every weekend. Wow, okay. So it's quite busy um, on the holidays and weekends when kids are off school. Um, Music-wise, it was quite barren, to be honest. Oh, really? Yeah, it was very much... I had to go up to Tel Aviv or Haifa um, to experience any of that. I mean, you might have the old rock band that likes doing Iron Maiden covers. Um, yeah. But nothing nothing I was really into at the time. Yeah, yeah. So what, what, so what were you into as a teenager? And how did you get into it, really? Yeah, it was a mixture, really. I think I started off... Did I start off? Probably started off really early on with, like, hip-hop. Um, when I was maybe 10, 11. Yeah. I was really into that. A lot of it because of the swearing. I was just really into that. Really into swearing. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then I kind of moved on. I, I always made mates with people that were a bit older than me. Um, and they were really into, like, metal. So I think the gateway metal, like I started with Metallica, maybe a bit of rock, maybe Nirvana, a bit yeah. of grunge, because that was 
what's popular at the time, like Nirvana, Soundgarden. Um, so moved kind of alternative and then kind of moved into a bit of gateway metal and then really onto the kind of harder stuff. Um, and then by the time I think I was like 14, I was really into like black and death metal. Um, but that kind of eased off when I got to 16 and then I kind of moved more towards the punk side of it. Yeah, yeah, because there is quite um, quite a lot of punk network in Israel, right? Yeah, there's a, uh, there's a decent... Well, there's kind of two scenes in Israel. There's one that's kind of a mainstream punk scene and then there's a DIY network, which is fairly close-knit, I'd say. Yeah. Um, with the nature of it, there's... there's 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 more people now which I'm really really happy about. But when I was growing up, there was maybe four or five bands, maybe at one point ten bands at the high time. Now it's flourishing. It's it's yeah. amazing. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing to see. Yeah, because um, I guess the names kind of they could, but there's a few bands at all like Europe that I've, I'm sure I've seen bands come through, mm-hmm. um, which and then do a lot of, did did a lot of um, international bands used to come over that you'd go and see. I wouldn't say a lot, but one of the one of the gigs that got me into kind of established me into punk was going to see uh, the business came. Oh okay. Yeah, so the business played Tel Aviv. I want to say maybe ninety eight. I was fourteen, probably about ninety eight. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that was amazing. I never saw like, I mean, I saw the odd Mohawk punk, but I never saw a congregation of people. Yeah. Uh, until I went to that gig, and then that kind of opened me up to the Israeli bands that were go that were um, at the time. There was uh, Nick Matul Alim that ended up touring with Oi Poloi around Europe. Okay. Uh, and there was um DPA, which stands for Dr. Pepper Addicts. <laughs> and it was really a variation, yeah. I mean, there was some, you know, kind of punk rock, pop punky side of it, which was a useless ID. And then going to the full-on kind of grindcore side of it, Barbie yeah. Nan, and then and a few in between. But the, I mean, I guess the crazy thing about it is that a lot of these bands shared members. Yeah. So although you pay loads of different styles, you you're actually the same core group of yeah, people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there was always a Tel Aviv versus Haifa kind of punk rivalry going on, um, which is interesting. Tel Aviv was more the kind of well, at least in my time, was more the street punk side of it. Okay. And Haifa was more the pop punk, skate punk, um, and hardcore side of it. Yeah. So, yeah, it was quite interesting to, to witness. We used to have... And when a gig happened, it was quite special. It wasn't like... I mean, like now, there's a gig pretty much every weekend. But back then, there wasn't. It was like once a month. Um, yeah, yeah, so there was when the gigs happened a lot of people turned up even to like remote locations like there was one kind of communal um um farm type which is kind of like a kibbutz but it wasn't really a kibbutz and they used to have a gig there a place called Mazor and it was terror by Mazor which means terror in Mazor and that was amazing I mean it was this small very I'd say maybe probably about 300 people lived there and then yeah. 100 punks just showed up on buses <laughs> and it was, yeah it was insanity it was a it was a good time to be to be involved I'd say but it, it did involve me travelling a lot yeah yeah was there anyone from the from your town that you that you travel with 
No, no. Okay. Um, so at the beginning, I used to, before my parents found out, I used to like hitchhike because hitchhiking was, was okay and it yeah. was okay as well. I used to hitchhike from my town with the lorry drivers and stuff up to Tel Aviv uh, and go and see gigs. Um, later on, I managed to swindle this kind of flight pass so I got flights because there's internal flights I got flights like 70% off because supposedly one of my parents worked there but they didn't okay. so I go ended up flying up there quite often which was nice um, so yeah it's, it's it's a weird kind of traveling to gigs I met some I mean I knew I used to go with some people that I know because I was in this youth group as well um, that had people from all around the country and then I kind of met them and that's how I got I guess into go into gigs because yeah. I always needed somewhere to stay so I'd stay at their house and that kind of got me into going to more different kind of gigs and yeah that's I mean in a nutshell I guess that's briefly how I started in in all of this yeah um, tried my, to start my own band well I did start my own band in Elat um, which was with the local alternative rock people yeah when you just all come you no one's really pushing it pulling in the same direction but it's all yeah kind of yeah, yeah there's only one drummer there's only one you know there's two guitars to choose from in the city and so yeah it's yeah it's called everbron and the showers okay and, yeah. and what were you doing in it i was singing um front man Cool. And I mean, I guess it was punk in its essence because from the name, you wanted to be confrontational. I mean, Everbron from, you know, Hitler's wife and the showers, which is like gas yeah. chambers. So, okay. Yeah, I wouldn't have got that. But. Yeah. That kind of pissed people off, which it was exactly what I was going for when I was 16. So, yeah, that was kind of my entry into punk. We did probably about three original songs and then the rest were covers okay but it didn't bother us uh, we only ever got two gigs and then some internal fighting in the band or something I don't know, I don't <laughs> yeah know. who remembers yeah. now but yeah oh fair enough do you still um ever see any of those people one of the guys uh, jonathan i'm still really good mates with um the other, there's two, there's two Jonathans in the band. Uh, one of them is a mate of mine who lives in Denmark that I speak to every so often. And then another one is a mate that I see sometimes when I go back to Israel. Yeah. But, no, I mean, you, you, you're yeah. hardly friends with people you're friends with <laughs> when you're 16 anymore, I think. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Um, and then, um, yeah, so I guess, yeah, it must have been like, yeah, how was the change moving to Barnsley? Did you move, is that what you moved back? Um, no, originally I moved to London. Okay. Uh, change was massive. I mean, I got out of Israel because um, I had to get out of Israel really fast. So I ended up, I refused the army service um, because of, well, because of many reasons, but mainly because of the me not wanting to serve and the whole issue of Palestinians in Israel, um, which ended up... There's a few ways to get out of the army where you get out on on mental health grounds or on physical grounds, but I decided to go down the route of pacifism. And very fast, I found out that they're going to try and make an example out of me, so they took me, they took me straight to jail. Okay. So I ended up spending probably about two weeks in jail... And then I was, jail was, it's quite hard in this world. At the time, I mean, I'm, I'm sure it still is, but at the time it was, um, 
there was a big Russian, um, so it's Soviet Union came down, the Russians started coming to Israel, so there's a big Russian immigration, um, and they were people that didn't adapt too well, or, well, I mean, I guess weren't accepted too well in the society, so they ended up in jail a lot. Yeah. So jail was dominated by people that were generally older than me because they've come over from Russia maybe when they're 24, 25, 26, yeah. and I was 17, 18 at the time. And they were speaking Russian, which um, was quite hard, um, and there were some issues in there. So after probably about two weeks, I said, uh, okay, I'll go to the army, just let me go home and get my stuff. They let me home, and then I hopped the border to Egypt and then got a flight from Egypt. Um, which meant that I couldn't go back to Israel for a long time um, because so I'll still take me to jail and stuff yeah. like that. Did you know that you could go back to Israel when you did go back for the first time? Um, that- yeah, so what I did is I applied to the embassy and said, uh, listen, I want to go visit Israel. I'm not planning to live there. If you want, I can even give up my citizenship. I don't really care about that. I just I want to go visit some of my family. And then because of my age, um, because I left it till after I was 25, yeah. they weren't too bothered about taking me to the army anymore. Yeah. So then I, I could just go back. And then since then, I've been back and touch wood, no issues. Um, I also kind of sussed it out before I went because I had a friend that was uh, doing his service, younger than me, that was doing his service in the military police. Okay. So I got him to check me up on the computer to see if there's any outstanding warrants, and there wasn't, which was lucky. So that kind of cemented it of going back. Um, it was hard though. It was about seven years that I couldn't. I didn't see any of that side of my family or my friends. Um, ended up that I went to visit in Egypt and went really close to the border of the city that I used to be yeah. in, and then some of my friends crossed over to come and visit me, which was nice. Um, but then, yeah, moving from a city, as I said, of about 45,000 people to London was yeah. intense. Um, yeah. I was work. I was living in Golders Green area, um, but then I was working south of the river. Um, yeah. so t- getting to work every day was like, from, from me being in my old town that I would either drive three minutes or walk 15 minutes everywhere. It was literally having to spend an hour and a half just traveling or two hours just traveling was yeah. a bit too much for me. Found it also just the whole, like, I mean, I think I was expecting to to raise my pace in the lifestyle, but I didn't expect quite the move to London um, and it was just too much. I ended up, spent there probably about, well, about three months mm. and then I ended up, I wanted to go to uni, so I was waiting for that to happen anyway. Mm. But then I chose not to go to uni in London. I chose yeah. to go to uni up in Sheffield. Well, no, actually, it was a foundation. I had to do an H&D, so I went to college. But Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I decided to do that in Sheffield and moved to Barnsley for a bit first and then moved to, to Sheffield. Barnsley also was was a bit of a polar opposite. Um I mean, I guess, I no, you know, I have an accent now, but my accent was a lot stronger back then. And in Barnsley, when I'd say to the majority of white people, yeah. um, I was definitely looked at very weirdly uh, being there. Um, I mean, Sheffield was probably, well, it was a lot more forthcoming, um, a lot more metropolitan, I would say. And 
we, there was a lot of international students, so yeah. people were used to people from abroad a bit more. I mean, now ten tenfold, but back then, I'd say, yeah, I moved from a very small town to London and then back to a small, very white town and then to Sheffield, but Sheffield kind of felt right, and I've been here ever since, yeah. bit, but that's yeah. about 12 years ago now, 13 years ago. Yeah. No, more than that. It must be 15 years ago. 15 years. <laughs> it's a long time. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Wow. Um, and then, yeah, so I, I remember you... So so did you jump back into, like, going to a few shows and that? Is that how you, like, met people in Sheffield? Or was it just, like, head down, get to college, kind of? Well, it was a lot head down, get to college, because... Um, for the first few couple of years at least, because um, when I came to the UK, uh, I didn't have um, the rights for any public funds okay. because I wasn't living here and my parents weren't living here paying national insurance. So I had to pay for everything that I did. So that's why I didn't have the money to go to uni. I went to college instead. Yeah. But while I was doing that, I was working like between full time and 30 hours. Wow. So that took up a lot of my time um, yeah. for the first two years. Then by the time I got to the third year, I could get a student loan, so I tried to live a bit more of the student lifestyle. Um, but the, the scene was really hard to find out about, to be honest. Back then when there wasn't internet, yeah. um, well, there was internet, but it wasn't used as widely as it is now to find out about things like this. Um, I ended up, it was really by chance, so a mate of mine, an Israeli mate of mine that moved to London, uh, was working at a job that a lot of Israelis do, which is kind of street sales. Okay. So he was selling scarves, selling pashminas. He looked punk. So then there was, I think it was Pancho at the time and Tommy Morris from Sheffield, who ended up walking down the Fargate where he was, and they ended up stopping and talking just because, Yeah. you know, you wear the punk uniform. <laughs> So yeah. then there was we found out about this rock bar that everyone went to called Dove and Rainbow, and then at Dove and Rainbow we found out we found all the flyers for gigs, and that's how I kind of got into it. Um, so I said it would have t- it took me about two and a half years since moving here to actually get into a scene. Yeah, I would say. Yeah, so I try. I remember trying to go to one gig that I found out about on the internet somehow. Um, Lazarus Blackstar, which was this band from Bradford. I didn't know who the band were, but I liked the imagery on, yeah. the, on the flyer. Yeah. So I was like, I was going to go there. Got there, and uh, the gig was cancelled. They just no one told anyone. Um, not even the band. The band showed up. Oh no! <laughs> but promoted didn't. Um, I mean, I never saw that promoter again in Sheffield, but I guess that's maybe part of it. Um, but that was an interesting one. And then, then it took another six months after that to properly get into going to gigs. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Part of it. Yeah, and then um, was, was it a three-year course then that you were doing? Uh, I did a two-year H&D and then a top-up year Okay. at Hallam. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then I, I guess you were just moving on with... Um, just was it a job 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 after that and yeah i mean it was it was a job during that so during that i kind of got a crash course on maybe i'd say english accents or uk accents because i worked in call centers so that was very it was it was challenging in a way at the beginning it was definitely challenging to understand people 
um, challenging to get across that I might not be based in India I'm actually in Sheffield yeah uh, people asking me like well if you're in Sheffield then what's the weather like outside and I'm like it's great it's, o- it's always great here there's no <laughs> yeah you know <laughs> that, that's how it is yeah um, so that was a bit of a challenge but I ended up I mean I did this course this, this business finance course because I was always good around numbers and I kind of needed to do something but by the end of it, I didn't really want to work in it. So I ended up doing training for call center stuff for a bit uh, until I ended up just really going off any kind of corporate work and I moved on to uh, working for the council. Yeah. 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 Nice. Um, so, yeah. Um, so you started going to shows now. Did you start playing music or was that a little while after? Um I started playing music probably about a year or so after that when um, a good friend of mine, Rich, moved into my house. Yeah. Um, so he's from a Yemen background, uh, but he's adopted. Um, so he, as well as me, kind of felt... I guess we were slightly out of place in the punk scene from our backgrounds. Okay. Because, I mean, both of us... Maybe not exactly white and come from a varied background. So we started this band um, called Judas, which was, I mean, D-Beat was all the rage at the time. Everyone, yeah. yeah. Uh, he was in other crust bands. Um, so we, a bit of a play on words, we started this band called Judas, which uh, in the time I was very much into creating a lot of imagery around that. Um, I had... The song's themes was things from like, I don't know, we had a song about Yuri Geller and then we had another song about this rabbi that um, when you have uh, circumcision, a Brit, in, in some parts of Judaism, the rabbi has to suck a bit of blood. Okay. So gives the baby a blowy, basically. <laughs> yeah. Um and then this rabbi in in New York ended up giving this um giving like twelve babies um chlamydia from passing wow. on the sex disease. So it's all kinds of stories like that on where kind of faith I mean we were very both me and Rich were very atheist and saw how religious elements in his life both him from although he was adopted his mother was very christian yeah um and then me from growing up under under a place that they were in a place that there was no separation between religion and state yeah yeah so we very much saw how religion corrupt a lot of aspects of life um and then that was the main focus of the i mean it was a bit tongue-in-cheek this whole band but so it was it was very much a a take on that but a tongue-in-cheek take on yeah on religion yeah yeah um okay and then that was that was going for a few for that went for yeah that went on for about two odd years um yeah. we didn't do any massive gigs i mean we only got out of the country once to go to prague um but that would kind of cemented my way into Starting to do bands and starting to do gigs because Rich was was a guy. Basically, Rich had a PA, so if you have a PA, you put <laughs> yeah. on gigs. Yeah. Or you get asked to to help with gigs. So that kind of was was me getting into doing all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, through Rich, really, and I mean, I'm grateful to to this day that 
I think without him, I would, I would have been more of a punk spectator rather than involved. Okay, yeah, yeah. He pushed you like, let's do it together. Can't not, not yeah. Might not have felt yeah, like I pushing, mean, but that's no. He was doing stuff. I was taking an interest, um, yeah. and he wanted. I mean, he recognised the same way that I do now that you need a younger generation to get into it, or yeah. else it's not going to sustain itself. Um, which is there a lot of issue that we're having now in Sheffield, to be honest, as well. Yeah, yeah, because um, I guess it's easier said than done when, like, you're just working out how that how to do that, I guess. Yeah. Um, or whether it happens organically, but then how do you set the things in place that it happens organically as well? Mm, I don't know. I mean, just thinking about... I mean, I know there's a lot more exposure on the internet now, but just thinking about the struggle that I had getting into it in the first yeah, place. yeah can imagine other people are experiencing the same struggle or I mean you don't know what's out there until you experience it um, but I guess it's also how do you give how do you give a stage to people that are um, that don't I mean you know we'd like to get all these bands that end up playing bigger places in Sheffield like Corporation that you end up having to sell so many tickets to start playing yeah We'd like to give them a stage to to do that. I mean, I think maybe the music is not so in line with us, what we're doing now as punk. But again, I think of the music that I did when I was 16, 17, and that yeah. wasn't necessarily punk. Yeah, it's easy to forget that as well. Yeah. I think with some people more than others, but like, you know, I think I've probably been bad at it. And then you, maybe mm. you get a bit older and you think... Why do I like you know? You can be a bit silly, but um, I mean, I think the the innovation kind of gigs that we've had with younger people in Lughall have been they've been mixed. I mean, there was one gig which is desolated from Sheffield. Okay. Um, they're the same, well, not same, but share members with a band called Malevolence, okay, uh, yeah, which yeah. are quite big yeah. in the hardcore scene. Um, but that ended up being a gig that I facilitated and helped out. But I guess because there wasn't too much of a mixed bill, none of the local regulars went. It was yeah. all a, a Just group. Mates. Yeah, but that actually led to a hardcore band. Um, well, it led to a few people that were straight edge hardcore bands that ended up coming back to the space to see yeah. different gigs, um, where they and kind of. One of them got on board on doing gigs at the space, oh, so nice. that kind of was the end, entry level. Fortunately, they ended up finishing Union, leaving Sheffield again, which is kind of one of the hard things about Sheffield, that you might get people involved, but they stay for time limited. Yeah. Because um, Hallam and Sheffield Union here, they're massive. I'm talking about 60,000, 70,000 yeah, students yeah. per year. Um, but you're only on a three or four year course and then people end up, I mean, a lot of people stay, but what we've had over the last few years is that a few people have left and that kind of ended that strand of the scene. Yeah. Yeah. yeah which is a shame, but we recognize that that's part of, part of being in a transient city like this. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's pros and cons. Cause I'm sure there's another city that would say like, yeah, it's amazing that you get these people through the mm. door. Um, I mean, I think Leeds is very much the same with that kind of stuff. Uh, although you do have some core people that ended up either being from Leeds originally that stay there, yeah. 
or people that have continued to live there and that's how you get things like the Chunk in Leeds now yeah um which is the younger people like bands like Famine or Nasnoop um yeah the smaller kind of faster bands yeah um but they're I mean they're the youngins uh, they're the future really yeah 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 um yeah and hopefully like yeah i mean because sheffield's it's got free well when when the lug holes back up and running um there's there's free diy spaces which is like and then if even if um like there's there's also like a lot of just like venue venues and like pubs and there seems to be so much but it's yeah there seems to be quite like a lot of spaces and yeah, I mean, uh, so we're really lucky in, in a way that we're able to do DIY spaces in Sheffield. Um, I mean, there's the Lug Hole and then there's probably a couple of smaller ones, Delicious Clam, that have opened yeah. not long ago, well, I say not long ago, probably over a year ago. Uh, Audacious, which are in the process of changing name now. Um, and they have been, they've been long, long established. Uh, and I think they've been... I would say maybe not having to put through, not put through scrutiny as much as they might have done if they were in London, yeah. or if they were in Manchester or somewhere else. Yeah, yeah. Um, which I think is good, because it means that things are able to flourish when they're when they're obtainable, um, when you don't have the barriers of having to have uh, bouncers on the door or having to have a booze license if you can have an area that you can bring your own booze to yeah that, that goes a long way it also makes it accessible i mean if you're on a limited income and uh, you want to kind of go to a gig if you go to a venue and you want to have a drink you're going to be spending the best part of 40 pounds a night um yeah 30 40 yeah. pounds a night but you can make it achievable with you know bringing your own booze coming to a gig Maybe the entrance fee might be a bit higher, it might be six pounds or seven pounds, but then that that makes up for it. I mean, that makes up for it loads with the bringing your own booze, and you end up spending fifteen pounds a night. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah. Which is substantial for quite a lot of people, I'd say. Definitely, especially like when we talk about the younger people as well, mm. where that money's coming from. You know, maybe a parent, or yeah. it's coming from a student loan, where you realise that it runs out a lot quicker than you'd, you'd anticipated. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, like, um, I guess when I first met you, um, like, I remember, like, you used to tour a lot, driving bands, and obviously we was yeah. with Dry Heaves as well. You used to tour a lot as well. When did that all kind of start? Um, I think that started when. So my housemate Rich, he lived with me. And he was always the... So there's always a guy with a van. You'll find out. In every city, there's always a guy with a van. Um, Rich was that guy with the van. So I was very lucky to be his housemate, but also to be able to go on European tours with him and his band, Bickles Cab. Um, I went on two European tours with him. So it ends up that you always have um, someone that ends up driving the bands around. Um now, when I finished uni, Rich ended up moving to Czech uh, to be with his partner, and obviously he took his van. Very, yeah. very selfish of him, but uh, <laughs> yeah. And I was lucky enough because I was working quite intensely throughout uni. I managed to save a bit of money, 
So I decided that I'd spend it on getting a van. Yeah. Um, and kind of pursuing... I was just starting dry heaves at the time. Um, and then my other housemate, Paul, he had skip liquors. Um, and uh, I just wanted to try and have those opportunities that I had with Bickle's Cab, but take them further, really, yeah. with my own band. And that I needed a van to do that. Um, and because I was probably the oldest one of our group, I was I was the only one that could actually get insured on the van. Yeah. Because I was at that by the time I got the van, I was twenty three, and then you had to be to over twenty one. Yeah. Um. So that kind of got me into getting a van, which ended up, you know, when you have a van, although you take your own band out, people ask you about using yeah, the van. Yeah, as soon as they see you turn yeah. up. From other bands using the van to moving people houses. So I, st- I ended up, then this was kind of me moving out of call centres because I was, I was actually sick of that. Yeah. Um, so I ended up going part-time at the call centre or picking up shifts at the call centre and then ended up driving some bands um, and going to gigs and go- going on tour, I mean. Um, and yeah, so that was... That was kind of my entry into into that, and it kind of ended up being dry heaves, skip liquors, but then it ended up being like closure, afternoon gents in Leeds, um, bands from Nottingham, bands yeah. from yeah, all over really. Yeah, <clears throat> was um was dry heaves always going to be a band that toured a lot, or it just happened to be that it just evolved into that kind of thing? Um, I think my vision for dry heaves, um, which was I guess I guess you'd say that I'm a fairly driven person in trying to achieve what what I envisage with that kind of stuff, and you know I, I kind of before I even started Dry Heaves, I knew who who I wanted in the band, yeah, and I knew what kind of music I wanted to get to, um, and then I knew that well I want to tour, and I mean I'm not we're not doing all this. I want to tour and release music. Yeah. Um, so that was very much a driving factor. Um, and then, I mean, I think that's evident because we released our first seven inch within the first six months of us being together. Um, although self-released, um, I did all the covers were folded by hand and yeah. ended up going on tour within the first year. Um, I think I was very lucky in the fact that I've been on a couple of tours and with Rich uh, and Brian, the band, we had some good connections. Yeah. So we had some good links of, you know, as soon as we were ready to tour, I knew who to contact to get those gigs. Yeah, yeah. Um, although we do the classic Germany, Holland, Belgium tour, I've got contacts there and I knew that I was going to use them. I think after... After that first or second European tour, I was like, well, I've done Europe now. What, what, what's next? Yeah, I yeah. want to do something else. Um, I'm saying Europe. I mean Central Europe, really, um, because we ended up coming back to do the Balkans to, at our last tour, and it was probably one of the most amazing tours. Yeah, yeah. yeah. How, how, how so? It's just very different than Central Europe, and it's so it's so within reach, but then it's also so so different I mean any of these ex-Soviet states I would say um, has a very different mentality to it Um, I mean 
I guess I guess Central Europe, like Holland, Belgium, Germany, maybe even Czech to an extent, have a well-established punk network going yeah, on there. Yeah. Balkans doesn't have as much. And you still get what we got when we went to Southeast Asia, that people are just generally interested because a band from England comes out to the... Maybe, maybe not the bigger places, but the smaller towns, just a band from England comes out, so all the local greebles will come out, yeah, whether yeah. they like punk or not. Yeah. Um, and that's interesting because then you kind of play into... I mean, I always I always love pay, playing to people who appreciate you, but also kind of the way I am, I always like to not preach to the converted, but try and open people's eyes to new things, yeah. um, which we very much got in the Balkans. It was It was great, I mean... At the time we went in June, it was great weather. The scenery was amazing. Um, you didn't get the tourism level that we experienced in other places. Um, we we heard some genuinely hard stories. I mean, we went to Bosnia and we spoke to people that have been through the war. And it's yeah. it's a very recent war. I mean, it's early 90s, so a lot of people doing the gigs there maybe mid to late 30s it's still you know still remember it um and talk to people about how how it was during all of that was was quite interesting and i mean that's one of the main things i like about touring is that although being a tourist in a place means you get to see a lot of monuments and a lot of things unless you know someone from there you very very rarely get the kind of experience of um a local experience yeah, or someone that, city. Yeah, yeah and getting to speak to people that you know you come and do gigs because you share some kind of vision or some kind of ethics and getting to speak to, from, to people around the world that do that is, is is amazing and that's what i love the most about touring i mean there's plenty of things that you hate uh, a massive snore in the band so <laughs> you know sleeping it was it was a struggle Driving, I did a lot of the driving, so that was physically tiring. Um, being in a place only for a day and not being able to see everything you want to see is also very disappointing. But, you know, on the other hand, getting to actually talk to people, to locals, and getting shown around by the locals sometime in, in areas is it's invaluable. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change it for the world. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, um, so you did the Balkans. Um, other places, I guess, that are off the off the usual track. So you, Southeast Asia, you did yeah, tour, did right? Southeast Asia, um, did Malaysia, Singapore, and Indonesia. Okay, was that um, flights from shows, or was that like driving, or a bit of both? How bit of both. Uh, so we had so between Singapore, Malaysia, Malaysia, Indonesia, we flew. Um, Singapore said tends to be a base, so you keep flying back and forth to Singapore. Um, Within Indonesia, well, within Indonesia, you was driving mainly. We were supposed to have this one flight, but it got cancelled because there wasn't enough of fuel. <laughs> so, it's the first time I ever experienced something like that. I mean, so, I guess you don't want to get on when there's not enough fuel. No, you don't want to risk that kind of it. thing, yeah. <laughs> Especially when it's only supposed to be an hour flight. So, an hour flight turned out to a 13-hour drive through a jungle. Okay. Which was quite an experience, Um we had a driver and a car. Driver kept falling asleep. The way he'd keep himself awake is watching these semi-pornographic dancing movies on a TV next to him. Um, 
which was when they went off and he and you could tell him started nodding off, we took it in turns to sit behind him and, and whistle or sing into his ears until he uh, sort to keep him awake. Wow. Yeah. I mean, there's some very <laughs> scary roads there. Yeah, um, yeah, I can imagine. So, yeah, no, we, we didn't want to take that risk. Well, as, soon as, we, as soon as we landed in Indonesia, in Surabaya, we had this... We're in this like four hour traffic jam. We're like, why is everything going so slow? Is this what it's going to be like? And then we get to where the incident happened, and there's just a fuel tanker on its side, just burning, just like on fire, and just cars going round it. <laughs> which in the UK, the whole, I mean, the whole town would probably be closed down, yeah. all the cleanup crews yeah. and everything. Just the way of life there. They just, just go on with stuff. Yeah. So it was, it, that was pretty crazy, um, you know, seeing mopeds with whole families on them, <laughs> and like mopeds driven by nine-year-olds. It's, yeah, it's all very, very crazy. I mean, that was probably the most, the diff, the I'd say the most different tour I've ever been on. Um, probably even place I've experienced. Yeah. Um, How were shows? Shows were crazy, uh, like. Talking about here about the the age thing, everyone was so young over there. Yeah, yeah. It was um, like in Indonesia, people are just into metal as a music. So yeah. where people listen to Capital FM over here, and yeah. I don't know, maybe Nicki Minaj or someone like Iron Maiden is played on the radio there, <laughs> and you know, there's massive, massive metal festivals that people go to, and it's also I, w I didn't expect it when I got there. Yeah. I didn't expect the level of people into alternative music as a, what we class as alternative music, which I guess for them is more mainstream music. <laughs> um, and then just the the amount of people just grateful that we came out, that we've come from the UK to do gigs. Yeah. Uh, we played a lot of, like, so many small towns and villages. Um, we played this place called Bangdung, which was probably my favourite one in Indonesia. It was like, we're going up with a van and it's an ascent. It's probably, I don't know, about an hour and a half ascent. Wow. But 45 minutes into it, the van just conked out. It was just too overheated. It was yeah. too warm for it. Um, we ended up hitching a ride up the hill. The van continued. Um, when we stopped, this is something that, you know, you experience when you're in tour or when you just go to Southeast Asia is that you have some stomach upsets. Oh, yeah. Um, and the toilets there are very much squat toilets. Um, so we had Chris with us who had a really upset stomach at the time. As soon as the, band as soon as the van stopped, he bolted out and beelined for this school that he wanted to go have a shit in. <laughs> So, yeah, we stopped a ride and we said, oh, we'll get a ride up. He'll just come in the van afterwards when the van cools down a bit. He must have been gone for so long. The van, we, we, saw, we got up to the place that we're supposed to be. Amazing view. Like, it's on the side of this uh, volcano. Wow. Yeah, this, like, um, roadside um, food place. The van comes up after us, probably about 30 minutes after us. There's no Chris. I'm like, what what happened there? Um, get a get a message from Chris's girlfriend in the UK saying, "You've left Chris." And I'm like, what? That, that's funny. Why did first of all, why didn't Chris messages himself? And secondly, how did we leave Chris? 
someone goes down like uh, John went down on a moped, went to get him, uh, found him halfway walking towards the city, but walking the wrong way, walking down the hill. <laughs> so that, that was that was a very weird occurrence. But yeah, the gig was there. It was amazing. So it's this side of this volcano in this kind of roadside food place. Don't expect anyone to show up. About 20 minutes before the first band's supposed to show up. Yeah. Just like a hundred mopeds come up the hill, <laughs> like three three people to a moped. Wow! It was packed. It was it was one of the most amazing shows we've ever had. That is incredible. Um, and with so with the bands that you play with, obviously they're like local bands and that. Yeah. They like all metal, like just any just mixed whatever kind of. Thing. Yeah. So it was one straight edge band which were called Fuck Bar Culture from the Coke Bust. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, the sound they were going for as well exactly They're like wow. the imitation that they do for European bands is it's spot on um, and then there was Militia Cachao which were kind of a I guess an Operation Ivy type oh, band okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then this other hardcore band I can't remember the name no more of a grindcore band I can't remember the name and then us um, so every gig was like Four bands is a minimum, but we're probably talking about seven, eight bands normally. Yeah, everyone wants to play for yeah. the show. Yeah, especially that, that European bands playing. Yeah. Um, but it was so good, and people are so grateful. Um, I mean, money was really hard out there, so, you know, we didn't we we didn't make any money on those gigs. Um, but the experience, you know, you can't really... It's priceless. Yeah, 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 of course. Um yeah, and did you have to take like? Did you take records and shirts to sell? So we took some. Rec- we didn't take records. Actually, we took about ten records, but they don't. They don't have records out there too much. Yeah. So they still do tapes. Yeah. So we had a one of the guys that they organised our Malaysia uh, gigs. He had a tape. Um, he, he had a tape label. Yeah. So he did a tape for us, a tour tape. Uh, and then someone else in Indonesia had a CD label, so he did a CD for us. So we had tapes and CDs that we we sold for like as low as we could just to get the music out there. Yeah. Um, and we had some shirts. We did fuck up a bit with the shirts and didn't do our um, homework. Basically, we decided. Well, we didn't decide. I, I asked a good friend of mine, uh, Joy, to draw us something for Southeast Asia. He drew us this character eating rice with chopsticks. Well, we found out later that no one used chopsticks out there. <laughs> they all used like a fork and spoon. Yeah. So, yeah, we kind of dropped ourselves in there, a bit of a stereotyping going on. Um, but what he did do was eating a lot of rice, and that was true to it. We ate rice every day for pretty much two, three meals a day for the whole three weeks we were out there. Like, by the time I got back, I didn't have rice for probably two months after. Yeah. Um, yeah, it helped when you go into the squat toilet, but it was it was crazy. But some of the food out there, it's probably the best food I've ever had. Oh, wow. Um, we got there first night to Penang in Malaysia, and there was this Buddhist festival going on. So I ended up that next to the venue, there was this... It's not a restaurant normally, but they just set up this restaurant... And all they had was, like, vegan stuff. So it was all fake meats. Wow. And we were, we were really surprised. And at the time, we were questioning, are we sure this is, this is not beef, is it? And, like, asking yeah. one another, getting someone to translate a bit for us. But, yeah, it was amazing. And then 
tempeh and sambal and everything. I mean, it was harder in the smaller areas to try and get them to understand what we wanted with vegan. So, for instance, we got this soup that we asked for, like, vegan stuff, vegetarian stuff, ended up having prawns in and quite a lot of stuff like that. I mean, you only do what you can do and, you know, there's... Because in Malaysia and Indonesia, it's um, and Singapore, it's it's a mixture of cultures. So yeah. Malaysia and Singapore specifically, I'd say there's there's people from India, yeah, um, and then there's people that are Chinese origin, and there's people of Malay origin. Um, so you get such a variation of foods there that it's, oh, it's wow. spectacular. Yeah, and then I guess mm. you must get the merging as well of those. Food cultures, yeah, yeah, you get some I mean, amazing stuff. They work a massive food hall, so you kind of have a seating area in the middle. They will always have the football on, no matter what. <laughs> It'll always be Premiership or so football, and then you can get food from anywhere around there. Okay, yeah, and uh, except for Indonesia, which was a bit harder. I mean, the booze was flowing as well. In Indonesia, it was um, there's a lot of fake booze because there's a lot of. Um, it's they're very stringent because of being a Muslim country. Yeah, they're very stringent around the giving licenses for people to make alcohol. Okay, so everyone makes their local alcohol, which is is a bit dicey at times. Um, like in Bangdung, where I said before, we got this one that was pretty much pure ethanol. Chris breathed a bit of it onto a lighter, and it it blew up. Wow. Yeah. Um, and then we got this really nice stuff called Chewy. It could be called Arak. Uh, I mean, there's different names for the yeah. different brews, but we got this really nice rice one, which was a bit like sake, um, yeah. but more white. Um, without, I mean, that one of us suffered, like Paul that was on that tour really suffered because he was, uh, he's a cider drinker. So everywhere out there is the beers, really. So you got Tiger Beer, you got yeah. Bintang, um, you got a few others, but there was there wasn't any cider. So he was sticking to the spirits. Wow! And the spirits, brave. Yeah, well, or silly. foolish. Yeah, <laughs> spirits ended up leading him to a situation that in KL in Kuala Lumpur um, on the. Uh, on the train, he was just laid on the floor, being sick every time the doors opened for a stop, on the way to us going to Batu oh, Caves. No. Uh, so it's uh, yeah, it was a very interesting tour. Um. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. Um, and then um, I guess the other place, which is not where everyone goes, would be Israel, right? Yeah, I mean, I guess the the reason we went to Israel was because of my connection there. Yeah. Um, I knew always that if I did do a band, I wanted to go and play in Israel, um, just to kind of really, really come full circle from when I used to go to gigs, because yeah. I never really got a chance to play in punk gigs in Israel. Even the band that I had, we didn't come, we didn't play out of the city. We just yeah. played like yeah. young band gigs. Um, but yeah, going back to playing Israel was amazing. We played in Tel Aviv twice. We played in Haifa. And we played in Jerusalem. Yeah, with some of my like, I, I was very lucky. I got to kind of the, the organizers and me were good friends, so I got to kind of pretty much choose what bands I wanted to play with. Nice. Um, and I got to handpick the bands that I love the most, obviously. So, um, yeah, that was really really good. Um, it was. I think it was it was a bit of an eye opener for the rest of the band in particular because we, although going to Israel and playing gigs, I wanted them to experience what Israel 
was fully about. So we ended up going to some Friday demonstrations there. Yeah. So we went to the Palestinian villages and basically, you know, we saw what happens on a Friday afternoon when demonstrating against the wall. Our guitarist fiddler got like tear canister like shot to in his back. Um, and you got to really experience that although you're in Tel Aviv and you might be in a bubble, people half an hour away or 45 minutes away are living this way and it's something yeah. you need to know about. Um, I think that was very much an eye-opener. Um, we had a guy that helped us, like facilitated us going there called Smiley, which was, I mean, I, I can't be more grateful to him that he, he put us up for most of the nights as well in his house. Yeah. Well, I had seven of us there and he facilitated us going and doing that re- that thing that really changed. I mean, I used to be a part of some Friday demonstrations before I left. So for me, it was really important to go back there and, and experience it again, probably 10 years, well, probably about eight years down the line. Yeah. Um, but also it was, it was really good that I could show other people that are going there, like my band, uh, what it's really like and not only have that that painted view of Israel that it's all safe and it's all fun and good food and good weather because there is there's a real issue going on there that people need to be aware of yeah yeah and um yeah because I, I remember you saying like going into Israel you can't go in saying we're going to go and play some punk shows, right? Because the punk mm. show, the punk scene, especially the one that, well, I mean, you could say it better, obviously, but the the one that you were playing in the shows mm. is like actively opposed, opposing the yeah the, the DIY state. scene, yeah. yeah, DIY scene is it's comprised of people that mainly have not gone to the army that um, oppose the Israeli occupation um, that. You know, they're all pro-peace and pro-finding a solution, maybe a two-state solution, maybe no-border solution, depending on where you sit on the anarchy scale. Mm. Um, But you can't just show up saying that you're going to play punk gigs. You can't just show up saying that you're going to be going to the Palestinian territories um, because you won't get let in and you get sent back and... Yeah, in fact, I had to go through separate to the rest of the band. So before that, I had to prepare them about what they're going to be asked and what level of detail they'll they'll experience there. Because, you know, even leaving as well, they look sometimes, you know, if they if you look a bit alternative and they think you might be going to that, they'll look through your phone, look at all the pictures. We had to, you know, hide our Facebook and stuff like that. It's There's measures you need to take to to stay safe from the state there. Yeah. 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 Um, and how Im- important do you think it is for? Because because I, 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 you you got a bit of like shit on the internet, right? Dry heaves as a band for going and playing yeah. shows, yeah. which I think that I think that people, you know, um, every now and again, I guess when a when a, a band goes and then gets called for it there'll be like a little resurgence of talking about it and then obviously when you get the bigger bands like your radio heads that have gone over recently yeah. which is um, obviously well I'd probably say it's a bit of a different thing than but yeah I think it's is it important do you believe for bands like the Dry Heaves of this world or the anti-Israel bands to go over to Israel and play if that's what they want to do kind of thing yeah I mean there's I guess what you need to consider is there is the BDS, which is really important to uphold. Um, 
but and if you read the BDS guidance, it's not really aimed at people like like DIY bands that go and play and pass a message to a smaller number of people that may be again we're talking about preaching to the converted but maybe on board with the Palestinian recognizing the Palestinian plight and um maybe looking at you know maybe supporters of the state solution mm-hmm. to a state solution or the no border supporters i think it's it's punishing them if you don't go in place and it, it plays somewhere like that and you you kind of create a situation of well if they don't want to come then you, you know there's always there's already a feeling in Israel that the whole world is against Israel, and to to make to make people that have the feeling I mean that are pro Palestine within the country feel like that is kind of an extra slap in the face. I mean I think well I'll explain a bit better with the the whole issue maybe that's going on with Maxim Rock and Roll at this point in time is that uh, Maxim Rock and Roll have decided to not um, not provide a stage and not provide a voice to Israeli punk because Palestinian voices are not heard, which you can understand in theory how that's a, a legitimate idea, but also you're kind of penalising the people that are pro-Palestine within that country, um, people that are pro the, the peace solution, um, and making, let's say, young people that are getting into the scene in Israel, if they see that they're not getting support in their views because they already have enough pressure from within the country to not hold a left-wing view, to not hold a pro-Palestine view, and if they're getting if they're getting criticism from outside Israel about doing that and the fact that, well, it doesn't matter what you do, you're still part of the problem. It's not a way to kind of motivate people to to be on board with that, and it actually creates more of a barrier um, for people to engage with that kind of activity. Yeah. I would say, yeah, in my opinion, um, and the whole issue with Maxim Rock and Roll at the moment that they're not showcasing any bands from Israel because the Palestinian voice is not there. It's kind of a bit of hypocrisy because they're not trying to reach out and engage the Palestinian voice around any subjects. I mean, knowing what I know about kind of what's going on there at the moment, at this point in time, there's definitely a voice within the hip-hop scene, probably a bit of a voice within the metal scene. They don't really have a punk scene out there uh, in Palestine or punk bands. Um, So trying to gauge that is... I mean, unless you're going like out of your way to try and engage with people in a dialogue of that, which Maxim Rockenwald aren't, they're just expecting people to submit things to them, you're never going to get that voice, and then you're yeah. still excluding the kind of Israeli pro-Palestine voice. Um, when you know you go to gigs and people openly talk against the against the Jewish state, against the Israeli state within Israel which is, you know, it's it's amazing and it's really a difficult thing to do. I mean, if you're, especially in today's climate, if you're left-wing in Israel, you're considered a traitor. Um, you're considered a traitor to the state, you're considered weak, you're considered 
um, someone that might be, you know, not understand what's going on, doesn't really, and and there's no, there's a very lack of empathy in the society at the moment in Israel. Um, so although, you know, they may have an idea and they may know what's happening in Gaza and the bombings and the killings, they see it as a tit for tat and they don't see it as a as what it is really, which is a very industrialised and wealthy country attacking the people, and with, which are the Palestinians, which are very much under-resourced. Yes, there is there is organisations within that that are fighting for freedom on an armed response, but what, what do you really expect? I mean, it's not that an unarmed response has helped up until this point. Yeah. Um, and this is why we went. We've been into. We've been in a different intifada since since the nineties because, you know, early nineties, late eighties up to early nineties was a peaceful way, but it didn't really achieve anything. Um, so then to kind of say that you're boycotting the people that are trying to support the Palestinians from within that kind of country, is very much. I think it's very counterproductive to what the bands should be looking to achieve really which yeah. is opening opening the dialogue and maybe you know you might end up playing a small small gig you might have people that are 17 16 17 year old coming there um and that might be the gateway into punk and then that might be the gateway into having the confidence to say no i'm not going to the army or having the confidence to say no what's happening in in gaza is not right what's happening in uh, you know, in Ramallah is not right, and being able to challenge that because you've got the backing of of what of a scene really yeah. of other people that think that way, um, and you're not just on your own there. I mean, especially in my city when I was growing up, I was, you know, out of maybe I don't know how many group of friends I had, maybe thirty people. I was probably about there's probably about four or five people who were left wing, and I was lucky enough to be that because. I heard from my dad, who ended up being a POW in uh, in, uh, in Syria, and he didn't never want me to go to the army, and he was very much pro peace all the time. Yeah. So I was very lucky in getting that from home. But a lot of other people got the exact opposite from home. Got the pressure to go to the army. Got the pressure to fight, um, and that's very and it's very hard to stand up to those kinds of social pressures unless you have some people that either feel like you or you feel like you've got some kind of social backing there. So I think that's that's why it's really important for small, you know, bands to to go there. And if people get, like, Los Fastidos are probably one of the more recent ones that did get a lot of... They got a lot of shit on the internet for it. But you need to understand that they're actually gone out to engage... They were invited by Antifa in Israel, which Antifa in Israel do so much for the Palestinian, you know, Palestinian plight there. Yeah. yeah, they weren't able to go to Ramallah and play and they weren't able to go to Gaza and play because of because of closed borders and because of, you know, the Israeli state. But you still need to be able to support the people that are working towards the same goal that you are. Uh, ultimately, that's kind of yeah. what I feel around that. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that... Um yeah, so I think it's a hard one, and I think that we're, well, we're being like people that I see, and you know, people like myself and that. I think it's easy to 
be it's it's not black and white basically. But I think certain ta- certain times you see certain things and it looks very like black and white. This is how you should. This is this is the side that we should be on. You know, these there is a a, a blackout for like bands shouldn't play in in Israel. You know, Radiohead shouldn't go, so like we shouldn't. But it's it's, it's mm. different, isn't it? Very different, different scale, yeah. I'd yeah. say. I mean, radio sh- Radiohead shouldn't go because it shouldn't be allowed that you could you can have gigs and normalize that kind of lifestyle while people so far so close are experiencing issues. Because um, most of Radiohead fans will be dickheads that went to the army and that maybe support you know the. The Israeli oppression in Palestine, and it's very different than going to play a small gig in a DIY venue with DIY bands when everything is non-profit. And the latest gig in Israel this weekend, they were collecting, they were collecting medicine for for people in Gaza. It was, and that's the kind of, and you know, the people that are in these bands are people that are actively opposing Israel in different ways. They might be anarchists against the wall. They might be going to a Friday demonstration. They might not be buying things from settlements, in different yeah. different levels. But it's it's very different than Radiohead coming to play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Brilliant. Thanks for explaining it in a way that I think well, yeah. it's just understandable. And yeah, um, I mean, I think it's especially it's especially two faced from places like people in the US saying that although they're a country that is oppressing people around the globe, Israel is different in the way that it oppresses people because it's within the same country. I don't know. I mean, it's all all crap, I think. But it feels a bit bit two-faced sometimes from people from the US saying stuff like that. when they're probably the country that is, if you look at it on a large scale, the most oppressive in the world at the moment. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, um, <laughs> yeah, moving on with that one. Um, so Dry Heaves kind of, they, you, you called it a day, was it two two years ago now, three? It's going to be two years ago now, in the two yeah. years of November, yeah. Yeah, and then um, I guess... Um, a lot of people in that band and like yourself, a lot of the energies went into like the lug hole, um, lug hole mark one. Yeah. Um, how old is, when, when did the lug hole open? Lug hole opened, um, four years ago almost. Okay. And how long, um, was that a thought process that you and uh, the others had? Let's do this kind of thing. Having our own space. Yeah. Wow. That's the thought process going back to, so we used to have a space in, in in a pub, basically called Crichter's Arms, the upstairs function room of a pub just next to the United Ground. Yeah. Um, the landlady there, she was an old punk, so she basically let us do what we want there. Yeah. Um, we put on gigs, we sold bottles of cider upstairs out of the cupboard. It was all fine. Wow, okay. Um, so that was a place that we could kind of call our own. Uh, and then there was a couple of squats. There was Silver Squat, there was Matilda Squat, and both those squats kind of showed us how we have the skills to kind of run it, run stuff ourselves. So we kind of combined the two of them in Lug Hole and tried to look at a more sustainable. I think it was probably about four or five years in the coming before it actually happened. Yeah. 
it was two years of trying to find a place yeah. um, that would be affordable in the right location and have the right facilities to yeah. both. You could do rehearsals there. So what we did is that we were um, probably about five, diff six different bands that then came together and say, well, all the money we're spending in practice rooms here, there and everywhere, we'll, put, we'll pull together. Yeah. And then we'll try and find... <coughs> We'll try and find a uh, a place that will that will be able that will be able to do it ourselves, and then we ended up finding this building. We had to do a bit of building work in there, um, but yeah, that's and then it came to came to light. I mean, yeah, it's mainly it started with me, uh, Bry, who was in Dry Heaves, who's Bry's a well, he's a pinnacle point of probably Sheffield punk. Um, <laughs> yes, he's in Rat Cage, he's in Cived, he's in Skip Lickers. Pretty much any good band that's ever come out of Sheffield in the last ten years, he's he's been a part of. He's in Heavy Sentence now in Manchester, a bit more of a, um, a heavy metal band. Yeah, yeah. So he's yeah, he was very much he's very much a driver of punk in Sheffield as well. Um, he puts on a lot of gigs. I do the festival. Me and Mark do the festival with him. Um, so we're thinking. So it was him, me, um, this guy called Paul, uh, who I used to live with, who was the drummer in Skip Lickers, uh, and then this guy called Dan, who doesn't necessarily do bands, but he was very. So part of the local is a motorbike workshop. Okay. So he's very involved in motorbikes. He was very practical around. Um, He's very he's a builder, so yeah. he's very good with his hands. He's very practical around how to build stuff, and we recognise that we need that kind of mixture of skills to to make to make it work. Um, so that was yeah, that's been going on four years this new year. Yeah, and uh, the end of December. Do you think, um, or maybe it just depend on the space? But do you think mm -hmm. like the like the the second lug hole will see? Will it be different to the first one, or is it just... Yeah, yeah. yeah it's definitely going to be different. It's going to be... Hopefully, my, my vision for it is going to be a lot more open to other scenes of music rather than punk. I mean, although Logol Number 1 was, to an extent, and we had some rock and roll bands there and the stoner bands, that was kind of bringing in the younger crowd. Um, so I'd like to see that continue and develop further. Yeah, yeah. I think just the sheer amount of practice rooms that we're going to have, if if it all goes to plan with this new place, all the sheer amount of practice rooms we're going to have means that we're going to have a lot more of a diverse scene come in. Um, we're going to have to scale up everything. We're going to have to have a full bar collective. We're going to have to have a full kind of... Um, Venue collective, it's it's gonna have to involve a lot more people. So I think in its nature, it's gonna change yeah. um, from what it was up until now. Um, which is, I think it's good. I think it's for it change. It will change with the times, hopefully, and keep us relevant. Um, because we're looking at a six, seven year lease, and you know, six, seven years, I'm gonna be mid forties <laughs> almost, um, early to mid forties. And I'm not going to be able... I'm going to have a child. I'm not going to be able to sustain the level of input that I've been yeah. doing for the last five years, five, six years. So we need the young blood and we need new, a new view on it um, collectively to, yeah. to make it successful. Yeah. Okay. Um, I guess we should probably start um, thinking about wrapping it up. Okay. But yeah, so I guess... Um, 
yeah, I guess if we were having this conversation in three months' time, yeah. I feel like it would be, uh, we'll be having a very different one. And we, I feel like we probably wouldn't be having one because you probably wouldn't have enough time. <laughs> Maybe. With uh, um, everything that we spoke about at the start. But um, yeah, so I guess, um, yeah, so just for laughs, that if when people are coming through Sheffield, it's on Instagram, right? Is that the yeah. main, main focal point of seeing what's, what's yeah. going on? Check it out on Instagram, Facebook, um, come in person. It's a, uh, it's an inviting place, I'd say. Yeah, yeah. And then, um, obviously, the lug hole, I mean, I'll be posting if, as and when stuff, stuff goes out. And then, um, yeah, but obviously, people from the lug hole are still doing shows in and around... Yeah, we do sh- shows around Sheffield at the moment. Um, still, I mean, there's been less frequency because we've not had that catalyst of just everything just being there. And yeah. You've had to work the way we would previously. But things are still going on. Um, I mean, I'd say as a wrap-up, just support your, lo- support your local from businesses to venues because that's kind of... You're not going to get any kind of innovation from mainstream places or from chains you're going to get it only from people that are trying to make a difference in their local area so that's why it's so so important to support your local coffee shop support your local music venue support your local record shop because otherwise we're just going to live in this corporate world where every high street and every street looks the same and everyone's doing exactly the same thing which is boring perfect brilliant thank you for that and um yeah cheers cheers so that was my conversation with Avi hope you got something out of it so the episode was mixed and edited by Liam you can find him at Liam C on Twitter this song is by Dry Heaves enjoy enjoy